Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I want to talk to you today about personal evangelism. I have entitled my sermon accordingly, Personal Evangelism 101. And it's coming from the 8th chapter of Acts, where we continue following the narrative, the story after the Samaritan revival. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake. Now, I want to pause there for just a minute. Let me make an explanation. I don't know what uh, version you may have if you're trying to follow one in your hands. You're looking at the screen up here, and it has the, the uh, word C-A-N-D-A-C-E, candace. And that is a common way that that is, is spelled. And we, we have variations on how do you pronounce it, and who is this, and what does it mean. Every time I've seen C-A-N-D-A-C-E, I've always called it candace. Uh, There are some sources that agree with that. Other sources pronounce it candace. The original Greek uh, word, the the word I read to you out of this version where it says candake is spelled with a K, K K-A-N-D-A-K-E, is actually very much similar to the Greek spelling of it. So we wonder if when we translated this with, with two C's instead of two K's, if we're even pronouncing it correctly. So what is it? Well, it is the female Ethiopian correspondent to the Egyptian male Pharaoh. So there was not a person named Candake or Candace or Candace. That was a title of a female, a queen. That was a queen's title. So in my reading, the treasury of the Candake, as as though we might say of the Pharaoh, which means, and the word means, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now I can stop right there and you've got your money's worth for today. I've already given you something you know that your friends that didn't come here don't know. This man, this eunuch, had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot which indicates that he was a man of some resources, had a pretty prestigious position. Many people did not have a chariot but he traveled by chariot and he pulls it over at a rest stop if we can modernize this just a little bit. And he was, during this rest period, he was reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. 
How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. First of all, I want to point you to the principle of divine appointments. And I wonder how many of you recognize any time in your life when you had a divine appointment. And I also have to wonder how many of you have had a divine appointment and didn't recognize it as such. God spoke directly to Philip, told him where to go, but he did not tell him why or what to do. He just told him, start traveling along this road, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, a deserted area. He didn't tell him how far to go. He didn't tell him what his destination was. He just told him, get on the road and start traveling. Now, it seems to be a common practice of God from time to time at least. Perhaps not every time. But it seems to be that God has from time to time unveiled his purpose and his plan in increments. We only get a little hint of it to start off, and we learn more about it as we follow along. God called Abraham to leave the land of his people and promised he would make him a great blessing to the world. But Abraham went, not just exactly sure where he was going or what it was all about. It was an obedience to a command without understanding the entire plan. There were many details that were yet to be revealed and were revealed only as time went on. He had a general promise somewhere along the line of his heirs and how they would multiply like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. But he didn't tell him how this was going to happen. And we read in the narrative of Abraham his misgivings about exactly how this is going to happen, his efforts to make it happen because it, God was just giving his plan in little increments. So once again, I, I think this is a time when without losing focus on what I have to say, we might ask ourselves, is, is there a time in my life when you said something like this, I know I am where God wants me to be. I just don't have a clue why. You know what that is? That's believing you're in the will of God, but you don't see the big picture. That's knowing you're on the precipice of something and God I don't see the whole purpose here I can't see the end of this I can't see what's going to happen all I know is here I am and this is where I'm supposed to be right now and you hope and pray God unveils this to you before you go crazy trying to figure it out 
It's a journey of discovery as well as a journey of obedience. You've maybe said, I know I'm doing what God wants me to do, but I don't see the purpose in it. Happy, blessed is the man or the woman who might understand the whole plan from the beginning, but that's not me. I don't know of any time in my life when I felt like I was obeying God that I knew the end game. I had to go and say, I just know right now I'm comfortable, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I sure wish I understood what this was all about. So we kind of feel ourselves like Abraham, like Moses, like Philip, and others in the Bible who don't see the full picture. And we understand the frustration, feeling like we're groping along in this darkness and trying to make sense out of what little bit we see and what little bit we understand, but wondering, what's the part we don't understand? What's going on out there what we can't see the end of this? You know, it takes a great deal of faith to move step by step phase by phase in God's plan without knowing what the next step or the next phase involves. That puts a lot of pressure on all of us. It puts a lot of pressure on the pastor. You know, we are expected sometimes to know the unknowable. We are expected sometimes because we are the pastor. We are in leadership. We are sometimes viewed as setting the agenda, as casting the vision. And there's been times in my ministry when people have quizzed me, where are we going with this? And my answer is, I don't have a clue. I can tell you what we're doing right now is being obedient. The people want more from the pastor. They're disappointed because we can't always see the end result. We can't always see the entire vision. Now, that doesn't mean that some people don't have a very firm vision of the whole thing. And they come in, and they've got the plans. They've got the details. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes as a pastor, I say, we just need to go walk on this road because that's where God wants us to walk. I can't answer your questions about where we're going. I can't answer your questions about what we're going to do when we get there, what we're going to see along the way. We just need to be obedient in a, as it relates to, as it applies to us. One of the general principles, guiding principles, that I've tried to uh, put before this church is we just need to be good stewards. What's that going to turn into before it's all over? Well, it's going to work out to something good, but I can't tell you precisely what that is. All I know is good stewardship pleases God. We're trying to be good stewards in everything we've done. We're trying to be good stewards. What about you, though? You also are in a place, and this is not just about pastors. It's not just about churches. Are you where God wants you to be? That's an important thing to answer in your life. My wife and I have gone through many episodes in our life of trying to deal with the frustration of not knowing where this is all going, what it's going to develop into. We've gone through many episodes in our life in, in just being so confused 
by the, the struggles that we have and, and of course the kind of conversation we've had multiple times, multiple times, countless times in our marriage. I remember driving back from California to Missouri several times and we would make that trip nonstop, 30 some hours. And while the boys were sleeping in the middle of the night, we're trying to keep each other awake, it seems like this was always one of the subjects that came up on those trips. Why are we where we are? Are we in God's will? The struggles are real. Maybe we've missed something. Maybe we're out of God's will because if you're in God's will, you're not supposed to struggle, right? <laughs> Stop it. That's no barometer for whether you're in God's will or not. So we, you know, we just had this conversation last year. Here we are traveling again, having the same, it fills in the time, I guess. And we always came to the same conclusion. The conclusion was you have to know who you are in God and you have to know where you are in God. I have, I have shortened that, it means something to me, so let me explain what it means so you understand. You have to know who you are in God. That's relational. Are you in God where you're supposed to be? Is your heart right with Him? Are you in right relationship with Him? Are you a child of God? Are you a servant of God? Are you obedient? Are you living in such a way that pleases Him? That's who you are in God. Then you have to know where you are in God. Are you where you ought to be? So uh, uh, when we have these, this conversation from time to time throughout the years, then, then uh, we would have to come to the place where we'd have to say either we're where God wants us to be or we're not. And if we're where God wants us to be, then we just have to accept the fact that this is the way it is and you have to go on and, and, and be strong. And if we're not, we need to repent and go where God wants us to be. Now which is it? We always came to the conclusion we're okay where we are. Because we couldn't figure out where along the line we possibly, with a wrong attitude, a wrong spirit, made the wrong decision. Well, were we wrong when we came here? Well, I don't know. Uh, give me some evidence. What makes you think we're wrong? Or maybe me saying, were we wrong when we came? Well, okay. Uh, is your relationship right with God? Yeah, I'm right with God. Uh, did you act in rebellion when you came here? No, I didn't act in rebellion. So you must be where God wants you to be. I think we can all relate to this because life is struggles and the struggles of life cause us to question things about life. Does God hate me? Has God abandoned me? Have I missed God somehow? Maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else and you've got to ask these questions. Who are you in God and where are you in God? And when you figure out that your relationship is right and you're okay, you're, you're wherever, this is where life has led you, then you just have to hold on and be faithful to God after that. So Philip came from a red-hot revival. And I don't know if the revival was even over yet or not. I don't even know where he was. Technically, we think he was right there in the middle of the Samaritan revival and plucked out of that. But technically, we don't know where he was when God spoke to him. There might have been a span of time there. We don't know that. But God spoke to him and told him, go get on the road and go start walking. And he was about to have this divine appointment. Those are exciting things. If you have stories 
of a divine appointments in your life, it's exciting to think, you know, that was, that was God ordered that I meet that person at this place at this time. That's an exciting thing to happen in your life. You were used by God. And things just came together in this huge world that we're in and all this population, you and this other person or this circumstance, it all came to a convergence point right here and then God showed himself. And you think, wow, that was a divine appointment I had today. So God tells Philip, go walking. And he finds a man who is described in scripture as being eunuch. He's the secretary of the treasury so to speak, the head of the treasury department under the queen of Ethiopia. And he had taken a journey to Jerusalem to worship, which means he had some Judaistic inclinations, some ties. He goes to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on this road, takes a little rest stop, pulls over, and... He reads, which would be a good thing to do to pass the time, a little relaxation. And Philip is just being obedient. He's just walking. And he sees this man, and the Spirit says, there's the appointment. Go over there and hang out until I tell you what to do. Now, you realize in our culture, we like our space. When you're sitting in a theater and it's only you and one other person, you do not want that other person next to you. It's like spread out. We've got the whole theater. I've got this row. Go find another row. I've got the balcony. You can take the floor. Don't sit in this chair. We like our space. So here is the eunuch in the desert place, and they're the only two people around. And the Spirit tells him, go in his space. Go hang out close to him. And so Philip heads right over there, and he just stands there. And the Ethiopian, the, 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 the eunuch, is, is reading out of Scripture. Now, you have to understand culturally what's happening here. It was a cultural norm to read out loud. That's the reason he heard him reading. Our culture, we don't do that. Libraries would be a mess for us if we practiced this. We read silently. But even if he's out in the middle of the desert, it was their culture to read out loud. So he's reading, and Philip comes close, and he recognizes what he's reading is Old Testament Scripture. He's reading Isaiah. So he comes over and he strikes up a conversation with this man. Do you understand what you're reading? It's a logical question if you understand the cultural background. Because Isaiah 53, and they weren't divided into chapters, you understand that. We use that as a divisional reference. So he wasn't reading Isaiah 53, but he was reading what we call Isaiah 53. He was reading this passage of Scripture. That passage of Scripture was a, a real mystery to the Jews. They read it. They were intrigued by it. They speculated about it. They debated. They offered opinions about it, but nobody really understood it. 
And of course, we, we have to really change our way of thinking about Isaiah 53 because we cheat. We know what it's about. We look at that and it looks simple. So you have to dumb yourselves down today to get the impact of what's going on. We're going to read this scripture and we don't have a clue who it's talking about and we're going to be just as puzzled as this man who's reading it. That's where you have to get yourself today to understand he's reading it. It's a popular passage of scripture. It's a controversial passage of scripture and maybe this eunuch just picks it up and he says, I'm going to go back to that passage of scripture over there that everybody he's always talking about I'm going to read it again and maybe something will jump out at me that I'll finally get some clarity on this centuries of struggling over what is the prophet saying who is he talking about so he whips out the scroll and he's reading and he's struggling with this and Philip comes up and he says do you understand what you're reading now the reason I set this up because This is a great conversation starter in this culture. And I want to read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. The part that he heard the eunuch reading, I already shared with you at the beginning. But I want to give you a feel of the whole chapter so you understand what these ancients were reading and how mysterious it was. And the the gist of this chapter is about somebody who is really suffering. And who is this person? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. See, we already have a he and we don't know who he is. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He, whoever this he is that Isaiah chose to write about, this mysterious unnamed person, he was despised, he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Don't think about Jesus yet. Don't think about that. We don't know who this man is. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wound we are healed. Who is this character? And what are they talking about? He took our iniquities. He took our punishment. Who could this possibly be? Is he writing about himself? You're writing about somebody that nobody else, is it a a fairy tale? Is it a fable? Is it a parable? Is it somebody that, that is going to come or already has been? Who is this person? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted and He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds were healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And now the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied, and by his knowledge... My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he's poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And without our understanding and our knowledge of Jesus, we have read this heart-wrenching account of somebody who has done something in behalf of other people and, and, and the prophet just called us a bunch of sheep that have gone astray. We don't know where we're going but this guy is some sort of a heroic suffering servant and nobody can make any sense out of it because they didn't understand the Son of God was going to come and die on a cross. For they didn't understand that. They were looking for a Messiah. They weren't looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a majestic Messiah. So that didn't tie into their theology. They don't understand this. And so the eunuch reads it. And Philip says, oh, yeah, you're reading that passage of Scripture. Do you understand it? And the man says, oh, I, don't, I can't understand it. I don't know how to, unless somebody explains this to me, I don't have a clue what this guy is talking about. So he puts it back on on Philip. Do you understand it? It's just the opening that Philip needed. You see, I also want to use this sermon as a template for witnessing. We look at what Philip is doing here and how he went about personal evangelism. And you have to look for the opportunities that are made available. First of all, you have to be sensitive to divine appointments. God will, can and will bring people into your life for a moment when you have an opportunity to speak something to them. Whether they respond like they should or not is up to them. It's not, it's not up to you. It's between them. It's between God. But it's a divine appointment where you have an opportunity to say exactly what you're supposed to say. And if you fail, you will have to stand before God and give an answer to why you did not respond to God's leading. But a divine appointment puts somebody in your place, in, in, in a certain place, in your space, in your life. And you have to speak something to them appropriate to that situation. So Philip recognized this is the divine appointment. Number two, he, he was familiar with the passage of scripture he was reading. So I said, this would be a great conversation starter. How do you start up a conversation with somebody where you're the only two out in the desert? Oh, sure it's hot out here. But he goes up and he says, ah, interesting passage of scripture you've chosen. Understand it? No, do you? 
And Philip's like, I'm so glad you asked. And he began at that scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. And Philip brought the interpretation, the explanation to the scripture to a man who had never heard it before. For all the centuries it remained a mystery. Philip unpacks it for him. The suffering servant, it's Jesus. And he didn't get into the whole sermon that he preached Jesus to him, but we can imagine, as he said, look at this part. That's what Jesus did. The man that was just crucified, he fulfilled this. He was wounded for our transgressions. Right there in the middle of all of this, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes were healed. Among all the other things, we like sheep have gone astray. We didn't have a clue where we were going. We were lost, but this man came and he made provision for our salvation and he made provision for our healing. And it was such an exciting thing to share that when he got done, the eunuch says to Philip, I want to get baptized. Here's some water. I don't know where water was in the desert place. It may have been an oasis or it may have been a shallow, muddy puddle from the last scarce rain they had. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, the eunuch thought it was good enough. Can you do it here? I want to get baptized. There was a conversion that happened in this man. Because of the power of the message of Jesus, because of the power of what we call Isaiah 53. And it got a hold of his life. This was finally the answer. The lostness of all human, humankind is, 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 is outlined here. The, 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 he describes him as the silent, innocent, perfect, spotless lamb. Innocently led to the slaughter. And Jesus is illustrated here as the vital link that makes sense out of Scripture. Without Jesus, Scripture doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He is the vital link that sews it all together. Without Jesus, obviously, there wouldn't really be a New Testament. Why would Paul write to the churches without a Jesus? And without Jesus, Isaiah 53 would never make any sense to anybody, for there'd be no fulfillment of it. It would remain an eternal mystery for Jews to speculate on, well, it must have been somebody that Isaiah knew. Or somebody yet to come we've never seen. Without Jesus, the entire Old Testament system of animal sacrifice would just be an ongoing, endless, pointless exercise in futility. Jesus makes sense out of all of it. Without Jesus, the promise to Abraham doesn't make any sense until Jesus makes sense out of it. Without Jesus, the promise to Dave of an heir to the throne would be meaningless. So what that there was a Solomon? So what that there are others? So what until Jesus makes sense out of what it means for him to have an heir to the throne? Without Jesus, the promise of hope and deliverance of Israel that they had been guaranteed their entire existence doesn't make any sense. Jesus makes sense out of that promise. 
If you're trying to read the Bible and have no understanding or acquaintance or relationship with Jesus, it's frustrating and confusing to read. You can try to live by the Bible without living for Jesus, but it won't make any sense to you why you're doing that. So I'll just summarize it like this. First of all, we've got this art of effective witnessing. Listen to the Spirit. You want to be an effective witness for God? The Spirit will direct you. Listen to the Spirit. There will be people that will be divine appointments in your life, and the Spirit will say, go hang out with them. They need to hear something you've got to say. Number two, look for the opening. There will be one. If this is a divine appointment, God's going to give you the opportunity. Don't blow it. Number three, be prepared to answer hard questions. Because if Philip could not have made sense out of Isaiah 53, this was going nowhere. He was prepared. And it's interesting that he was able to make that application of Isaiah 53 because nobody had been saved too terribly long yet. And they were just learning how Jesus was the fulfillment of certain Old Testament things. Jesus did not teach his apostles everything about the fulfillment of every scripture in the Old Testament. I mean, some of these things that just had to be inspired and directed, instructed by the Spirit. So when did Philip go to school... Bible school and learn that Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in Jesus. We don't see the time for him to do that. But he was prepared. He was prepared when he went there and sensitive to the Spirit and, 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 and he opened up the Scripture and it became apparent to him, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. It all makes sense. You cannot be an effective witness if you're not prepared to answer the hard questions that people have. They're going to challenge you. Why should I follow you? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I go to church? Why should I believe in the Bible? And I've been, uh, it's been very important to me as a pastor to try and get everybody grounded in Scripture because I don't want you to come to the point where you have a divine appointment, you have a divine opportunity, and somebody puts the question to you and you can't answer it, and they walk away and they will not serve God, they will not come to Jesus, they will not consider Christianity because you don't have any answers for their questions. What a sad state to be in. You ought to be able to give them some answers to their questions. And if you're not prepared, then your work's cut out for you. You need to get prepared. You need to be ready. Peter tells us to be ready to give it a defense of our faith. People want to know. And it's not going to do any good if you've got a red hot opportunity. And somebody asks the hard question. And you'll say, my pastor knows. Let me go get him. You'll lose your opportunity before you come back. Why don't you know? Why can't you answer those hard questions? And I think that's a challenge to every one of us today. I said, I need to be ready. I need to be studied up. I need to be prepared. And they'll put some hard questions to you. What are you going to do when you run across somebody that God has brought into your life by divine appointment? And they're hungry and they're searching and you're trying to bring them to Jesus. And they say to you, you know the reason I don't believe in God is because I see all the suffering in the world. 
And I cannot believe in a God that allows little children to be molested. That, I, that allows people in, in foreign countries to starve to death. I can't believe in a God that allows things like that to go on. And are you going to stand there and say, well, I can see your point. All right, yeah. Have no answer to you. Have a good day. Or are you going to be able to give an answer to them? If you took my apologetics class, you'd have had an answer. There are answers to those things. And those are real questions people are asking. Can you navigate your way through that and bring them to God? Bring them to Jesus. What is the answer? Well, there's several answers to it, but let me just send you with one, okay? Just to put you at ease. And one is that what happens in this life is not the end of the story. Eternity is the great equalizer. There might be a lot of injustices in this life, but when we trust in God, he levels it all out in eternity. Yes, there have been people unfairly treated in this world, but God changes it when we get into eternity. The Lazarus and the rich man. Why should Lazarus, a godly man, suffer like this? But then Abraham says, now he's comforted. You're the one that's suffering. Because eternity is a great equalizer. That's just one of them. Be prepared. Now there's a tradition that the queen of Ethiopia herself converted to Christianity. This is not in the Bible. Tradition is, is not always 100% reliable, but when you have nothing else and tradition follows along the pattern and the line that you're going and it makes sense, you have to take this into consideration. The queen got saved. One of her eunuchs got saved, came back and, and ministered Christianity in Ethiopia. And somebody else got saved. And Christianity got planted in Ethiopia. There's tradition that this treasurer, this eunuch, became the apostle of Christianity in that whole region. Furthermore, some evidence suggesting that it carried it into Abyssinia and preached the gospel in South Arabia and Ceylon where there he suffered martyrdom. That's what the tradition says happened. We can believe that when he got radically saved and wanted to be baptized and was excited about the news, he went back and began to tell somebody. And you know, just telling people spreads the gospel, and just spreading the gospel grows Christianity. And we do know Luke doesn't follow the narrative of the converted eunuch. All we have is the tradition and the speculation, but we do know that he went back to Africa as a Christian convert. We do know the seed got planted, and in 330 A.D., just a couple of hundred years after this was happening, Christianity officially became a state religion of Ethiopia. And Christianity now had a strong foothold in that nation, helping to establish Ethiopia as fundamentally a Christian nation among non-Christian nations in Africa. Somebody took the gospel. 
Ethiopia historically stifled the spread of Islam in that country. While it began to take over surrounding nations, it never got a strong foothold in Ethiopia because of Christianity. Christianity reigning uh, today at about 60% Christianity in Ethiopia compared to about 30% Islamic. Somebody planted a seed 2,000 years ago that got the foundation of Christianity that staved off the false religions and the false doctrines of Islam. Where Islam cannot come in and darken the light that's burning brightly. It can only take over where there is no light. You never know how many people may end up in heaven because you were responsive to a divine appointment. Because you saw the opportunity and seized it and said the right thing at the right time. You don't know centuries from now how many people are affected because of what you did, what you said, who you ministered to. You said, I'm just one person. What can I do? I don't know. If you share the gospel with people, you might be responsible for a million people being saved. And if you don't share it, you could be responsible for a million people being in hell. We need to be serious about being witnesses for Jesus. Philip obeyed. Aren't you glad Philip obeyed? Go to the desert. Start walking. Draw near to the chariot. And you know, at that point, God quit giving him directions. He told him to travel on the road. He told the Spirit told him to draw near to, to the chariot. But, but you don't see the Spirit or God giving him any more directions. Because at some point, God expects you to, to get it. You know where you're going now. You know what you're doing now. For, at some point, God expects you to step up to the place and say, Oh, I understand now. I can do this. And Philip saw the opportunity and didn't have to be directed on every little word to say. He just took over and said, I, I've got it now. I understand why I'm here. And he began to do what he had been trained to do. Let's all be prepared to be effective witnesses. And look for those divine appointments. And give us the courage and the boldness to speak Jesus in a timely fashion. Worship team come.